Hello, David Oakes here, and welcome to Teresa Crowd. Right, if you refuse to absorb nothing else of this whole episode, and that will mean that you miss a ridiculously cute bit on dormice and a fairly geeky bit on hedges, let me leave you with these two Elizabethan nuggets. One. Archaeological surveys of outdoor theatres have shown us that the Elizabethan culture comestible of choice wasn't popcorn, wasn't nachos, and wasn't reconstituted offal in baps. No, they preferred the energy-rich hazelnut. The groundlings of the globe were literally smothered in discarded hazelnut shells. And, too, this from Romeo and Juliet. Thou wilt quarrel with a man for cracking nuts having no other reason but because thou hast hazel eyes. That is the first recorded use of the word hazel ever in the English language to describe a colour. God, I love Shakespeare. And God, I love Phil Cumbers, who kindly illuminated that bit of Mercutio for you all. More Phil to follow. But until then, jingle. A pudding, a secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. This week's tree is tree 42. Hazel, hazel, hazel. Hazel, Corollus avellana. Avellana is named for Avella in Italy, a town and surrounding area renowned for its abundance of luscious hazel trees. But not simply bound to Italy, our hazel is native to pretty much every single corner of Europe, with the exception of the hotter parts of Spain. Following the Ice Age, hazel spread rapidly. It is a member of the Betulaceae, along with the alder, birches and hornbeam, whose tiny fruits possess a modified ovary wall that both protects the seed within and aids with its wind dispersal. But hazel seeds are different. They are far too large to take flight, for a hazel seed is the famous cob, a large, nutritious nut that sits within a cup of leafy bracts. To colonise Europe, therefore, the hazel was reliant upon relationships with seed-dispersing birds and mammals. But a squirrel will bury a nut merely metres away from a tree, hardly traverse continents for the privilege, which has led some to speculate that mankind must have been particularly partial to the hazelnut during the Mesolithic period, and that man may have been responsible for the hazel's dynamic distribution across our continent. Indeed, the pliability and versatility of the tree's wood, let alone the nutritional value of the nuts, would have made the tree a firm favourite to Mesolithic man for crafting. And archaeological sites have often been found with slow-decaying hazelnut shells in abundance. But back to hazel's furrier seed dispersers. In Scotland, hazelnuts are split in half by red squirrels or gnawed by wood mice to get to the kernel inside – Whereas south of the border, especially in the south of England, the story is even more fluffier. In England, hazel hedgerows are vitally important for arguably our nation's cutest animal, the dormouse. The dormouse is so dependent upon hazel that we even named it after it. Our hazel's scientific name is Avalana, whereas the dormouse's is Avalanarius. We even often call the dormouse the hazel dormouse. Now these tiny rodents, weighing in at as little as 15 grams, fatten up on hazelnuts before entering hibernation, and come spring devour a hearty breakfast of hazel leaf buds and, being omnivorous, hazel leaf-stuffed caterpillars. 
Pick up hazelnuts from the floor and you may just see where the dormouse has chewed his or her way into the fruit, the telltale clues being faint diagonal teeth marks and a small hole with a diameter of less than a centimetre. In the summer months, the dormouse weaves nests from grasses and bark into the very fabric of our nation's hazel hedgerows, into which they then descend for their winter months of hibernation. Their name, Dormouse, coming from the French dormir, to sleep, perchance to dream. But what dreams may come when dormice have shuffled off this mortal coil by a worrying 56% since 1995? The hedges bordering the country lanes that lead to my home are predominantly hazel, tightly managed and extending for miles. Yearly, I watch the local farmers cut them back with their tractors and their flail cutters. These are hedges maintained for functional agricultural and commercial endeavour and seen to those that work the land as only incidentally providing shelter and larder for hundreds of wild species, or at least that is how it appears to me. The flail's indiscriminate method of hedge cutting, especially if conducted at an inappropriate time of year, is extremely damaging to our hedgerows, especially to our native population of dormice. But, as always, this is only one side of the story, a soft naturalist's one to be precise. Farmers are required by law to prevent their hedges from transgressing into neighbouring highways, and there are already regulations that require hedge cutting to be conducted in the winter months in order to minimise the impact on wildlife. Not that these laws are always obeyed. Also, cutting a hedge is mahusively better than replacing a hedgerow altogether, and cutting them can even help in thickening a hedge out, which is, there's no denying, beneficial to nesting dormice and or birds, such as the nightingale, willow warbler and yellowhammer. But yearly cutting significantly limits the abundance of flowers and fruits, which is certainly not ideal for anyone, bird, bee, dormouse, or even farmer's partner with a penchant for foraging and jam. Ultimately, a considered approach is, as always, best, such as treating different hedges in one area to different strategies of cut severity and regularity. This could support both the biodiversity at large, as well as appeasing both the farmer and dormouse-loving naturalist, all whilst obeying the law. Hazel hedgerows aside, allowed to grow wild, a hazel tree can grow to around six metres tall. The leaves of the hazel, like all the leaves in our native Betulaceae, are simple and arranged alternately. Like the silver birch and next week's hornbeam, hazel's leaves are biserated and roughly one and a half times as long as they are wide, although they can often appear almost circular. Upon closer inspection, you will also see that the leaves and the twigs are hairy, and that the hairs on the petiole are tipped with a tiny bright red sticky gland during the spring and summer, which is there to dissuade insects from nibbling too heartily. The bark of the hazel is smooth, shiny and a greyish brown, and as with our oaks and many of our older species, hazel can often be found covered in mosses, fungus, liverworts and lichens. In fact, hazel harbours a few incredibly rare species. There's the rare and brilliantly named blackberries in custard lichen and the hazel gloves fungus, which grows almost exclusively on old hazel trees and is a conservation priority species. Part of the hazel gloves scarcity is that it is particularly vulnerable to air pollution. So if you are lucky enough to find it, congratulations, the air you are breathing is almost certainly amongst the cleanest in Europe. 
And what is particularly cool about the hazel gloves fungus is that it is not actually feeding on the hazel, rather on yet another fungus, one sandwiched between it and the hazel, the glue crust fungus. Now, hazel, like all the Betulaceae, are monoecious, meaning that both male and female flowers are found on the very same tree. Green catkins, the male flower, form in autumn and remain dormant until February, at which point they turn a rich golden yellow. The pollen they produce isn't sticky, meaning bees find it hard to harvest and is another sign that hazel is a wind-pollinated species. The female flowers emerge next from the buds with tiny styles like strands of vibrant saffron. They look like a shy scarlet sea anemone emerging accidentally into completely the wrong environment. This combination of gold catkins and scarlet strands always brings a smile to my face, for the coldest months must now be behind us, and the heat of our longest days is soon to be sunk deep into the hazel's fruits. Cue Philcumbus and Keats's Ode to Autumn. Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, close bosom friend of the maturing sun, Conspiring with him how to load and bless With fruit the vines that round the thatch eaves run To bend with apples the mossed cottage trees And fill all fruit with ripeness to the core To swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells With a sweet kernel to set budding more And still more later flowers for the bees Until they think warm days will never cease For summer has o'erbrimmed their clammy cells God, I love Keats. One of my favourites. As you can tell from that poem, hazelnuts are an autumnal fruit, the female flower developing into groups of up to four nuts, each surrounded by a cup of leafy bracts. They begin ripening around the 22nd of August, which is, chance would have it, the feast day of the French monk St. Philibert, which is why some know the hazelnuts or cobs by yet another name, the filbert. But as autumn draws to an end, come October and come Nutcrack Night, where traditional communities would bandy together to enjoy the season's mellow hazel fruitfulness. You've already heard from an English poet, so here is a Scottish one, Robert Burns, on a traditional cob antic that would take place on Halloween. The old goodwife's wheel hoard at nuts are round and round over the end, and money lads and lasses' fates are there that night decided. Some kindle couthy side by side and burn together trimly. Some start awa' with saucy pride and jump out o'er the chimley. Did you get that? Well, even Burns himself felt he might need to help his audience decipher that one. In a postscript, he said, Burning the nuts is a favourite charm. They name the lad and lass to each particular nut as they lay them in the fire. And accordingly, as they burn quietly together or start from beside one another, the course and issue of the courtship will be. Thank you to Pollyanna McIntosh for being my gloriously incomprehensible Rabbi Burns. Our obsession with hazelnuts continues to this day. We cultivate and harvest them in huge numbers with 75% of all of the world's hazelnuts coming from Turkey alone. Perhaps more bizarrely, 25% of the world's hazelnut harvest is taken by just one firm, Ferrero. They make Nutella, the chocolate spread which originally only incorporated hazelnut into the recipe due to cocoa being in short supply during World War II. And they also make the ambassador's favourite, Ferrero Rocher, for which they are supposedly exploring a way to use the inedible shells of the nut as a sustainable packaging for the product. 
Right, so now we've had an English poem and a Scottish one. Time for something a little Irish, methinks. But rather than simply a poem, how's about a folktale where poetry is both a form of payment and a God-given form of foretelling the future? A folktale starting with hazelnuts. But to save me from sounding like a fool through pronouncing Gaelic words incorrectly, here are the dulcet tones of the talented, beautiful and only person I know who has survived being eaten by a mosasaur, Katie McGrath. So Irish folklore speaks of nine magical hazel trees that surrounded a sacred pool, Antober Shegish, or the Well of Wisdom. The cobs from these trees imbued the eater with knowledge and power and were supposedly solely for the mouth of the Necton, the god of the underworld, and for the record, his three mates. But from each of these nine trees, the magical hazel cobs would drop one by one into the dark waters where hungry salmon would come to feed. To this day, were you to fish at the start of the River Boyne, the supposed site of Antobersegish and Necton's secret nuts, the number of spots found upon a salmon's back represents the numbers of magical hazelnuts they consumed. So even in folklore, fish is brain food. Celtic myth even doubled down on this with the tales of an old seer, Fintan McBokra, also simply known as the Wise, who could shapeshift into, you guessed it, a salmon. But that's another story. And another salmon. Anyway, one particular fish, one David wants me to call Steve. Steve the Salmon. Ate a hazelnut from each of the nine trees, and by doing so, obtained all the wisdom known to nature. Armed with this wisdom, Steve retrospectively adopted the moniker Ombradon Fassa, the Salmon of Knowledge. And it was fated that through what can only be described as some kind of epigenetic pescatarianism, whoever caught and ate the salmon, he, or indeed she, would attain the power of tenem lauda, the power of foresight. Foresight through the writing of poems. Is there any better kind? Now, depending on who's telling the story, having been fishing for between seven and twenty years, whether a poet or a mischievous druid master, or indeed both, it was Finn Eckes who eventually caught the salmon formerly known as Steve. Yet, having spent so long trying to catch the thing, he was obviously too lazy to cook it. For with the promise of being taught some poetry as payment, a young man named Fionn McCool was tasked to cook, but not eat, not one bite, the fish. But as Steve sizzled in the pan, scalding hot salmon oil spat onto Fionn's thumb, whereupon Fionn instinctively thrust his thumb into his mouth, and an Irish legend was born, one with poetic foresight, one with magic nut oil-infused salmon on his hands. Wise hazelnuts, wise fish, wise thumb, the wisest of Irish folk heroes, Fionn McCool. And with that, back to you, David. Thank you, Katie. And thank you too to Phil and to Pollyanna for adding some extra poetry to this week's proceedings. For that is almost the end. But by my reckoning, we've had the Irish hazel superpower of poetic foresight, a Scottish poem detailing the explosive hazelnut's love-divining properties, and the very English Keats getting all poetical about autumnal mists and mellow hazel fruitfulness. So to end an episode of a series that is trying to champion all corners of the British Isles, best to find some Welsh hazel poetry. So off to Google I went. Hazel. Dylan Thomas. Go. Zero results. Just numerous mentions of Bob Dylan's song about a girl called Hazel. For, as anyone who has read Watership Down knows, Hazel is a fantastic girl slash rabbit's name. But, not to be defeated, and that being the case, in my attempt at British balance, pop a Ferrero Rocher in your mouth and relax. Because here, instead of a poem about Hazel by Dylan Thomas, is the song Hazel by Bob 
Dylan, adapted by my friend Thomas, although he's known as Tommy to his friends and produces the Sublime Sound Spring podcast. Go and check it out. There's a link on the website. Thank you, as always, to all of you for listening. And here is Dylan Thomas's Hazel-ish. Hazel, dirty blonde hair I wouldn't be ashamed to be seen with you anywhere Cause you've got something I want plenty of A little touch of your love Stardust in your eye You're going somewhere and so am I I'd give you the sky up above For a little touch of your love No, I don't need any reminder how much I really care But it's just making me blinder and blinder Cause I'm up on a hill And still you're not there You called and I came Now don't make me play this waiting game You've got something I want plenty of 